You've probably heard of John Hyde, the missionary who over the years became known as Praying Hyde as a result of his remarkable prayer life. Maybe you yourself have been challenged by his example. You've heard some stories of answers to prayer that he received and you thought, I would like to live that kind of a lifestyle of answered prayer myself. What is really the difference between John Hyde and me? I think the essential difference between somebody like John Hyde and and me and you is he determined to do it. He determined to pray. He just prayed, and he prayed frequently. And there was a time in his life when he made that decision. John Hyde was not born as praying Hyde. He wasn't born on his knees, so to speak. There was a very definite time in his life when he made the transition between being just John Hyde and becoming praying Hyde. Do you all know when that was? I've mentioned this before, that's why I'm asking. Do you recall what time of life Matthew remembers? Mm -hmm. Right, during his college years. He started Bible college as uh, an average Bible college student. He wasn't remarkable in any particular way, but God allowed a deep trial to come into his life. And as a result of that trial, he made the personal determination, I am going to pray. And he spent time in prayer at a specific time in his life, praying all night long about what God's will was for his life and God's calling. And from then on, his classmates in Bible college said there was a dramatic change in him. And he, even in Bible college years, became known as the man who prays, praying Hyde. And there are many reasons given in the Bible why you and I might not see answers to prayer. But this morning I want to talk about what I believe is the number one reason why we don't see answers to prayer. The Bible talks about in Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But the Psalm goes on and says, but verily God hath heard me. Sin could be a reason for unanswered prayer, for the reason why we don't see more answers to prayer in our life. Daniel chapter 9 talks about spiritual conflict. Daniel was fasting and praying, but there was a conflict in the unseen angelic realm that delayed the answer to prayer. Maybe sin, maybe spiritual conflict. James chapter 4 talks about selfish requests. Sometimes we are praying, but we are asking amiss that we may consume it upon our lusts. Another biblical reason why you and I might not see answers to prayer But I believe as we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11 here this morning and look at this text of Scripture, I believe Jesus here is talking to to you and to me about the number one reason why we don't see answers to prayer, and that is simply because we are not asking. We don't see answers to prayer because it's not our habit. We're just not doing it. We're just not praying. And in the first part of Luke chapter 11, you see three parts of the lesson on prayer, three portions from verses 1 to 4. There's a pattern for prayer. The disciples of Jesus saw his prayer life and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them a model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in verses 1 through 4. And we won't spend much time discussing that this morning. It's a pattern for prayer. Then in the second part of this lesson on prayer, verses 5 through 9, 5 through 8, excuse me, there's a parable about prayer. And here Jesus gives a story and some explanation of that story. It's an illustration. And I'd like to spend a significant amount of time this morning talking about that story, that parable on prayer, and its meaning and application for you and me today. Then toward the end we see verse uh, 9 through 13, some principles on prayer, principles and promises here, some applications of the lessons on prayer And again, we won't spend a lot of time on that point. We'll just touch on it this morning. 
The central part of this passage is the parable on prayer, verses 5 through 8. And I'd like to spend some time digging into this. It's an unusual parable, and I think there are some features that are worthy of our study. Jesus talking to us about why is it we don't see answers to prayer. Frankly, we're just not asking. This parable is unusual. In the series of the, the parables in the Gospels, you know that the Gospel authors said on more than one occasion about Jesus, he always used parables when he spoke. Without a parable, spake he not unto them. And it was a favorite technique of his. There's about 45 parables in the Gospels, more or less. It depends on how you count the parables. But in all the parables of Jesus, I've had a few opportunities myself to study through the Gospels and the parables in particular. I don't know of a parable that's quite like this one. It's unusual. It has some unusual features. So in Luke 11, 5 through 8, we're going to look at the unusual question, then the unusual answer, then an unusual word that's found in this parable. And I think you'll see that there are some very marked, definite applications for you and me today in our prayer life. First of all, just allow me to point out in the context of this parable, this parable may not be exactly what it seems to be. It's not actually a story about how difficult it can be to get answers to prayer at times. This is the story about the friend who has a need for bread and he goes to a neighbor at midnight and he asks to have some loaves of bread. And because of the phrasing of the story, sometimes we read it quickly and casually and we think, this is one of those parables that talks about how difficult it can be and how we need to be uh, persistent and repetitive in prayer and uh, really bang down the door because sometimes God is uh, similar to a reluctant friend who just doesn't want to open the door and, and help you out. And that's not what this parable is actually about. However, that is a biblical principle. If you turn over a few pages to Luke chapter 18, you see a parable found in Luke 18 about the widow and the unjust judge. And that parable is definitely about the fact that we need to be persistent in prayer. Now let me ask you this, how do I know that? How do I know the, the, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge in Luke chapter 18 is definitely about the principle that we need to be persistent in prayer? How do I know that? Well, because that's what it says, yeah. Verse 1, he spake this parable unto them, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, a parable is a preaching illustration. When a preacher gives a story and a message, there's a point connected with it, usually. And if the preacher is giving a, a story as an illustration, he'll point out to you what the point is. In this text, we actually have more explanation than we have story. We have about four verses of story, and then we have five verses of explanation and application. And Jesus is saying this is what it's all about. This man, at the end of verse 8, will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Look at verse 9, a threefold repetition, a poetic emphasis of the, the eagerness of God to answer prayer. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Verse 10, the same thing, another threefold repetition for emphasis. Everybody who asks receives. It's, it's not exclusive, it's inclusive. A anybody who knocks is going to see the door opened. Everyone who seeks will find. And then the analogy given in the final few verses. You're a human being, a human father, and you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your heavenly father give to those who ask him? And here we see that Jesus is trying to encourage us to simply pray. Remember at the beginning of the passage, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. 
They didn't say teach us how to pray, teach us the techniques. They said teach us to pray. And it was a good question and that's exactly what Jesus is teaching them. You need to do it. Because your heavenly father is eager. Because those who knock on the door will see the door opened, you need to do it. And that's what this story is all about. So with that preamble, with that look at the context, again, how do I know this is what the parable is about? Because that's what it says. The Bible is not a mystery novel. You're meant to know. If you give the Bible text a chance to tell you, it will tell you what it's talking about. And it's not a choose-your-own-adventure story either. You don't get to say, I feel like this is probably what it's all about. No, Jesus is telling us, you need to pray. If you want to see answers to prayer, God is eager to answer, but you have to do it. If you want to see a door opened, well, you have to knock on it. But if you knock, guess what happens? What happens? It opens. And it's not so much a question of if you knock 300 times or three times, the door's not going to open if you don't knock. So what you need to do is knock. And that's what this story is all about. So let's look at this unusual parable, verses 5 through 8. Let's explore a few points. First of all, the unusual question. The story starts this way, verse 5, Luke 11. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? Notice, first of all, that this parable is unusual because it is in the form of a question. I don't know of any other parable in the series in the Gospels that's quite like this one. It's a hypothetical situation. Jesus is asking a question. He's not so much telling a story. Here's what happened one day. A man had a need for some bread, so he went to his neighbor in the middle of the night and knocked on his door. He's saying, what would happen in this kind of a situation? Which one of you has a friend like this? Which one of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within, the question continues, and he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot rise and give thee. And that's the end of the question. If you have your Greek New Testament, you can see the question mark there at the end of verse 7. If you have your Spanish New Testament, you can see the question mark there at the end of verse 7. In our English, we see it at the end of verse 6. It doesn't matter so much where you put the question mark. You need to understand this parable is stated in the form of a question. Now, which one of you has a friend like this? And in this kind of a situation, what would you have to do to get the door to open? That's the essence of the question. We're talking about prayer. And in a spiritual sense, what do you have to do to get the door to open? Okay, so we've set up the scenario. Which one of you has a friend like this? That if you go to him and say, could I borrow your Bible for a second? He says, okay. We'll try that again. With emphasis, which one of you has a friend like this that if you go to him and say, could I borrow your Bible for a second? He says, no. He said, no, leave me alone. You can't have my Bible. It's valuable. And besides, I'm sleeping. <laughs> right, so that's the setup. Okay, here's this scenario. It's a hypothetical situation. You know what a hypothetical question is like. Just for the sake of discussion, what would happen in this scenario? It's like if I phone my wife and say, uh, yeah, hon, how are you? No, I'm just here at home, and uh, listen, I have a hypothetical question for you. If I had, um, hypothetically speaking, spilled a mug of coffee on the rug, uh, what would I do about that? 
Okay, and where would I find that cleaning fluid, hypothetically speaking? So that's the scenario. So you see those three verses, that's the parable. What would happen in a situation like this? Now here's the unusual answer. All right, we've laid the table. It's an unusual question, unusual for a parable. Here's the unusual answer. Verse 8, I say unto you. Now this is where Jesus puts the emphasis, the capstone on the structure that he's built. I say unto you, here's what's going to happen. And notice at the end of the verse, the story ends happily. He will get out of bed. He will rise. He will throw open the cupboard door. He will say, take as much bread as you need. Hey, this friend, this neighbor is not reluctant to give away his bread. He's not hoarding bread and saying, go away, leave me alone. I can't help you. The story ends with him actually getting out of bed and giving away the bread. The question is, what makes the difference? You know, what really gets that door to open? And that's what we're interested in. What really gets the door to open in my prayer life? So verse 8, here's the unusual answer. I say unto you, though he will, what's the next word? Not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his, what? Importunity. He will rise and give him as many as he needeth. So there's a contrast that's set up here in this unusual answer. There's two optional scenarios. There's a negative and there's a positive. This neighbor will not get out of bed and help him out with some bread because of friendship. However, on the other hand, because of something else, he will get out of bed. He will throw wide the cupboard door. He will say, take as much bread as you want. Bread, I've got bread. Help yourself. You've got a need. Take the bread. Okay, so we need to talk about this. What does this mean? He will not get out of bed because of friendship, but he will get out of bed because of importunity. Let me give you an illustration. If I have a friend, I mean really, in real life, as a part of our friendship, we will do certain things for each other. We will help each other in certain ways. Who here would like to be my friend today? Anyone? Okay, Will. If you wouldn't mind, can you just step up to the front just for a second? Will is going to be my friend. So as a part of our friendship, we do certain things for each other. What do we do? We maybe call each other on the phone, check up, ask how are you doing, and um, maybe exchange text messages and emails. It's things we do for each other as a part of friendship. Might go out for dinner as long as Will's paying <laughs> because he's my friend, and I would not want to rob him of the blessing. So we do things like that as part of friendship. Uh, what else, what, what sports do you enjoy? I know you play basketball, I've seen baseball. you play. Baseball, okay. We play a little baseball, we get the mid on, we play a little catch in between class hours. These are things we do as a regular part of friendship. So Will, are there some things we would not do, each, do for each other just as a regular part of friendship? Would I call you up in the middle of the night and ask you, if you need some bread, just because we're friends? No, sir. No, no, no. Will! It's me. <laughs> Fine, thanks. Um, look, I was just wondering, do you need some bread? Yeah, I know what time it is. Will? Hello? Will? No. So that's what this unusual answer means. 
Now this neighbor will definitely end by getting out of bed and helping out his friend with bread, no question. It's not the friendship that gets him out of bed though. The friendship might mean that they share a meal together. The friendship might mean they call each other on the phone or play some sports together. But there are some needs that require asking. All right, thanks, Will. I appreciate it. I was blessed last night with a remarkable illustration. Hey, even this right here is an illustration. Will wants to help me out, doesn't he? He'd like to help me out. Pastor Zempel needs a hand with this. But is he going to jump out of his chair in the middle of the chapel session just while I'm speaking and say, hey, I just wondered if you needed an illustration. <laughs> no, Will, sit down. You know. Five minutes later, hey, sit down, Will, wait till I ask. Yeah. But he gets out of, out of his chair in the middle of chapel and walks to the front. Wow, that's a weird thing to do, right? Why did he do that? Why? Really? I'm not being silly. Why did he do that? Because I asked. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 8. A lot of things you do as a result of friendship, some things you have to ask about. I was just about to say last night, this actually happened. Uh, we, have a, we have a really neat feature in our, uh, in our family room, really neat. When it rains very hard and it's a little bit windy, uh, the chimney leaks. So, <laughs> so some people pay thousands to install these indoor waterfalls you know, on, the, on the wall. Ours built in. Well, last night, it, it was raining hard and it was windy. Uh, I was in bed sleeping. I was trying to sleep. And uh, my wife noticed. She was working in the family room. She noticed there's some water coming in. And so what did she do? She went upstairs. She woke me up. Hey, there's some water coming in. You know. And so I got out of bed. I went downstairs, checked it out, cleaned it up. It was not a problem, not a big deal. And I went back to bed. Okay. We're husband and wife. We do things for each other as a part of that relationship. One thing that we don't regularly do is I don't get out of bed in the middle of the night every single night and say, hey, can I help you clean up some water? You know, my wife has to ask. But think about this, speaking of hypothetical questions, what if my wife had just sat there and looked at it and just worried about it and just felt frustrated and upset about it and just all night long while she was working looked at this water and said, where's my husband when I need him? Where is he? Where is that man? And this morning when I came down to breakfast, what if she said to me, look, where were you? And I would say, what? She would say, last night there was water here, the chimney, the fireplace, the thing, and you were nowhere, and you were, I thought you were the provider for this household. And, and you know, Why did you not help? Of course she would not say that. But think, if, she, if, if I came down to breakfast and she said, where were you? Why didn't you help? What would I say? You didn't ask. But if she comes up to, you know, up, upstairs and she asks me, you know, she knocks on the bedroom door and says, hey, we got a problem. Would I get out of bed? Would I help? In fact, I did, as a matter of fact. I don't know how many times she asked. I really actually don't. Um, <laughs> but that's not the issue. And that's not the issue in this parable either. It's not a question of did he knock on the door 100 times or did he knock five times. The point is he knocked. He got over his shame and embarrassment and the awkwardness of the situation and he said, if I'm going to get some bread, I better go knock on that door. I know it's midnight and this is so embarrassing, but if I don't knock, I'm not going to get that bread. How ridiculous would it be for that friend the next day to go to his neighbor and say, hey, I thought we were friends. Where's my bread? Ridiculous. Am I right? 
Yeah, the neighbor would say, you didn't ask. I got bread. You didn't ask. He didn't get out of bed because of the friendship. He definitely got out of bed because of the importunity, though. Yeah, that got him out of bed, and he helped, and he was eager, and he said, yeah, I got bread. You take bread. You need bread. Help yourself. Take the bread. So we've got an unusual question. We've got an unusual answer and then an unusual word, and I want to talk about the word importunity in just a moment. Let me just share quickly a, a personal testimony, something God has been teaching me and reteaching me. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a very similar experience. I was going through a very busy day. I had an agenda in the morning, a lot of things I had to do, and I felt the pressure. I looked at task number one. I said, that's, I can foresee that's going to be difficult. I could really have problems with that. You know what I did? I prayed about it. Mm, yeah. I prayed about task number one. And I went ahead and did it, and it went fantastic. So smooth. I mean, unexpectedly, it went really well. I said, that's great. I went on to task number two. That one didn't look so bad. And I jumped right in. And you know what happened? It was a disaster. The whole thing just fell apart. And uh, I thought, what is going on here? You know, I have things to do today. And the thought struck me so forcefully in a way I can't really explain. No doubt you've had this experience, but I'm quite sure the Holy Spirit was speaking to me, and he said, you didn't ask. And there was no reason at all for task number two to be such a disaster. No reason at all. But the Lord was saying, you prayed about task number one because you felt like you couldn't handle it. Task number two, you didn't ask. And listen, God is our Heavenly Father. He is our friend. He makes his rain to fall on the just and on the unjust, and he causes his sun to shine on the just and on the unjust, and he daily loadeth us with benefits, and he gives us all kinds of things we never even asked for, but some of his gracious gifts he will not force upon us. And we need to ask. And I very definitely felt at that time, I'm sorry, you know, I, I prayed about number one. I should have prayed about number two. I stopped right then in the middle of the whole process. I prayed, and it resolved itself. And do you think I prayed about step number three on my agenda? I did. I definitely did. And I'm sure I've learned this lesson before, but I think uh, I think I just had to relearn the lesson. Let me ask you, BCM students, which part of your daily agenda do you feel like you don't need to pray about? When you came into the chapel hour this morning, did you pray about this? Or did you say, well, it's just chapel. I don't have to take a quiz. I'm not meant to give any speeches in here. Nobody's going to call on me to stand up and be an illustration or anything of that nature. Look, it's chapel. I just sit there and I challenge the guy up front to try to get my attention and try to teach me something. I don't have to pray about this. Well, maybe no doors are opening here in the chapel hour because you're not knocking. Could be you're not receiving a whole lot this morning because you didn't ask. I don't know. I'm asking you the question. What about it? Which portion of your day do you feel like, well, this is the portion I don't really have to pray about? So that's the answer Jesus gives. It's not the friendship that gets him the bread that he needs. It's the fact that he got importunate. He went and knocked on the door. Now let me talk about importunity. So we're examining this parable. We've got an unusual question. The whole thing is a hypothetical situation. What would happen in this scenario? Then we've got the unusual answer. It's not his friendship that gets the bread to him. 
It's the importunity. Finally, the unusual word, importunity. It's an unusual word in English. It's not a word that I hear frequently. It's been a long time since I've heard anybody use the word importunate in casual conversation, maybe standing in line, you know, at McDonald's. Can I get that Big Mac, please? I'm importunate. No. It's an unusual word in the Greek New Testament, too. As far as I know, it only appears one time in the whole Bible. And importunate, importunity is the translation we get in English. I believe a lot of people have the understanding when they read that word that it means a lot of repetition. Because of the lots and lots of repetition, that's what got him out of bed. It's not really what the word means. Not technically in English, but in English it implies repetition. Not really in Greek either. Let me give you my best effort at this. The word means unashamed desperation. More or less. Unashamed desperation. It's not so much a question of number of times, although if you're unashamed and desperate, you're going to ask as many times as it absolutely takes. You might, you might knock on the door a hundred times. You might. It might only take five times. But the fact is, if you're standing at your neighbor's door at midnight knocking, you are importunate. If I see you at two o'clock in the morning at your neighbor's door and you're knocking, I know that you're importunate. I don't know how many times you're knocking, but I know that. If I drive through a suburban neighborhood and I see some guy standing at his neighbor's door and knocking, I might not know his name, I might not know his age, I might not know the nature of the emergency, but I know one thing about this guy, he's importunate. If you want a great visual image of what the word importunate means, that's it. It's you standing at your neighbor's door knocking in the middle of the night. That's a great visual image. That's what it is. You've gotten past the social awkwardness of it. You've gotten past your pride. None of that matters. You're unashamedly desperate. You've got to get some help. I don't know why, but there you are. You're knocking. That's what this guy in the story is doing. Because of his importunity, that'll get him some bread. That will get his neighbor out of bed, and he'll get the help he needs. If he doesn't go over there and knock on the door, if he sticks with the, hey, I can figure this out on my own attitude... He's not going to get any bread, but if he gets past himself and starts asking, he will receive. If he starts seeking, he's going to find. If he starts knocking, the door will open. The lesson is, you got to do it. You have to do it. Importunity means you've gotten past your own pride and your own self-sufficiency, and you've decided, I better ask about this. i got to get some help. I might have to ask five times. I might have to ask 500. I don't know, but i got to get some help. I don't know if any of you have ever had to dial 911. Anyone? I've had to do it a couple times in my life. One situation, a man was having a heart attack, you know, right in front of me. I dialed 911. Another situation, two people were breaking into my car in my own driveway. I dialed 911. If I'm dialing 911, you know what I am? Importunate. Importunate. This thing is beyond me. I can't do anything about this. i got to get some help. And prayer is a lot like that. Importunity is what makes the difference. I wonder how much of our day we want to carry through on our own without asking, without seeking, without knocking. Look at these promises and principles that follow up the story. Verse 9, and I say unto you, verse 9, here comes the application, ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it 
shall be opened unto you. That is a certain promise, not questionable. It's going to happen. Allow me to just mention this quickly. Some folks say about verse 9, well, you see in this imperative here, it's a linear idea. You know, the, the commands should be translated more like be asking, be seeking, be knocking. And uh, so the point is you need to ask lots of times rather than just a few times. Allow me to quickly say, because this is a college congregation here, I probably wouldn't mention this in other settings. First of all, this translation is appropriate. It's good. That's what the command is. It's ask and seek and knock. Second, though there might be linear implications, the point of this command in verse 9 is not ask lots of times versus asking just a few times. That's not the lesson here. Be asking a hundred times rather than be asking only a few times. The lesson is if you're not seeing doors open, you need to be knocking rather than not being knocking. That's what the command is. That's what the lesson is. If you're not receiving anything, the problem isn't that you're asking a few times. The problem is you're not asking. So what you need to do is stop not asking and start being asking. That's the point. I just say that in passing. Verse 10, this is inclusive. It's not just for John Hyde and George Mueller. Everyone that asketh receiveth. Everybody who seeks is going to find. To him that knocks, it shall be open. But the implication is, if you're not, if you're not knocking, it's not going to open. If you're not seeking, it's not going to find. You're not going to find. If you're not asking, you're not going to receive. And the point is, just ask. You need to ask. I brought with me a list today. I don't intend to read through this. I just wanted to show this to you. This is a list that I kept 20-plus years ago when I was about your age, a list of answers to prayer. And at that time in my life, this was just happened to be my experience. During my Bible college years was the time when I really learned how to pray for myself. And as you know, I'm still learning and relearning many of these lessons, but I kept lists. And I remember during those college years, the first time I ever fasted for any significant length of time, I fasted and prayed three days during final exams week and saw remarkable answers to prayer um, in my final exams. And I don't know that it was the final exams that was the issue so much, but I learned something about prayer in that experience. I prayed about quizzes. I prayed about tests. I prayed about little things. I discovered that I enjoy little answers to prayer far more than I enjoy big answers to prayer. I prayed for a roll of duct tape because I needed duct tape and I had no way to get duct tape. Do you know what happened? God sent me duct tape. And though I love to see God's provision to purchase you know, land and build buildings and these big answers to prayer, somehow I take more pleasure in the fact that when I needed some duct tape, God just sent me some. I prayed about a Greek quiz. I walked into class one morning, a few minutes early into Greek class. All the students were sitting there in their own chairs, absolutely silent, studying their Greek books. Do any of you know what that means? <laughs> there was a quiz that day. I legitimately had no idea. I had no idea. I only had a few minutes before the bell would ring and class would begin. I'm sure in my younger years, I would take matters into my own hands, scramble, 
try to make it happen. You know what I did? I sat down in my chair and I prayed. And I said, Lord, I legitimately had no idea about this quiz. And there's absolutely nothing I can do. And I'm just asking for help. And I had about a minute. I looked at my book. I had just enough time to look at maybe 10 items. And that was it. And the professor walked in. And we put away our books and he handed out the quiz. And this is not an exaggeration. There were 10 items on the quiz. They were exactly the 10 items I had just looked at a few seconds previous. I got a 100% on that quiz. And I just have to say, I didn't, I didn't get the 100%. That was the Lord that, <laughs> that did that one. And I learned some things about prayer, and I remember these things. And I'm just saying to you, this is the time in your life. You need to start making a list like this if you haven't done it already. And no answer to prayer is too small. These are the things you're going to look back on. Some of these things, I looked at this this morning. I didn't even remember that. I was like, oh, yeah, now I see it. It brings it back to my mind. It's amazing. I don't think I even recognize the significance of some of these things. We're talking about souls saved, people discipled, praying for outreach. One day, eight people were saved. We prayed for them. Seven of them came to church the next day. I mean, uh, just things like that that at the time I thought, wow, that's neat. And I wrote it down, and now I look back and I think that was really significant. Are you keeping a list like this? Just moving to a very practical level. This is the time in your life to lay this foundation. Pray about the little things. Do you know what? The little doors won't open either if you don't knock on the little doors. You've got to ask for the little things, too, and learn these lessons. Well, probably this is the point. <laughs> With all this interesting discussion about the technicalities of the passage, on a practical level, this is the point, this is the burden I have just for us this morning. At this time in the school year, only about five weeks into the school year, I've already picked up on some things that are a little troubling. Students expressing frustrations to each other, talking about, I'm not happy with the way things are, and this is too bad, and this kind of stinks. And I'm not so burdened that there's a huge undercurrent of bitterness and criticism. I doubt that's the case, but what I'm hearing of and overhearing is students saying, yeah, I don't really like this. Do you? No, I don't really like it either. Do you understand what you're doing as just admitting I'm not receiving anything because I'm not asking? I'm not in a habit of prayer. Are you? Nope, I'm not either. And we feel a need to get together and express our frustrations to each other because apparently none of us knows how to pray. I'm not trying to talk down to you. I find life very frustrating myself. At times, it's, it's discouraging and it's hard, but this is exactly what we don't need to be doing. Going to somebody else and essentially admitting, I can't get any answers to prayer, so I'm just upset about this. What about you? And just encouraging and fostering faithlessness. It's not the culture we need to have. On a positive note, I've observed this a couple of times. In the lunchroom, in the hallway, I've seen a couple of students just getting together and praying for 30 seconds. Hey, let's just pray about that. And that is the appropriate response. And I think that is the response that we need to see institution-wide. We have a frustration. Okay. We want to share that burden. All right. The response is, let's just pray about that quick. Because if you're not asking, you're not going to receive. 
So ask. Ask. Where your frustration begins is exactly where your faith ends. But how about we encourage each other? Oh, you got a problem with that situation? Let's pray about it. Really, can you imagine praying John Hyde, expressing frustration like that to his fellow missionary workers? Wow, this is really rotten. Boy, this really stinks. This situation makes me unhappy. Do you suppose he talked that way? I don't know, but I doubt it. I really doubt it. More likely he was praying about the frustration. Okay. So on that personal practical level, that's the direction I'd like to see us head. Less of the uh, whining, eh, this is too bad. More of the let's get together, let's just pray about that. Let's see what God will do. What if your dormitory room was just like that? Every tension and frustration that came up, you just said, let's just pray about that real quick. What if that became your whole dormitory room culture? What if that was what you did at home? Some of you aren't living at the dorm, you're living at home. And I will tell you, honestly, this is harder to do at home than it is at the dormitory. Just say to your sibling or your mom or your dad, can we just pray about that quick? It feels a little awkward, right? To just stop everything, just stop in the hallway, stop in your living room and say, hey, let's just pray together quick. It feels a little embarrassing. Yes, it does. A lot like knocking on your neighbor's door in the middle of the night. A lot like that. We got to get past that, though. Let's just make every little thing a matter of prayer. To wrap up, I'll borrow an illustration from John R. Rice. He wrote a book on prayer, and in the book, he gave this illustration. He said, Imagine this your time has come, you leave this earthly life behind, you go to heaven. And as you enter the pearly gates, there's an angelic messenger there. He's waiting to receive you and to give you a tour of the splendors of heaven. As you're walking down the streets of gold, you notice a large building off to the side. It looks like a warehouse. You say, well, what's that building? He just simply ushers you in, and there you see row after row, shelf after shelf of packages. As you walk closer, you see there are names on the packages. You see your own name on many of the packages, and the contents are clearly labeled. You look, and you see this is exactly what I needed during my lifetime. This is exactly what I needed. Why did God not send me this gift when I needed it? And, of course, your angelic friend simply says, because you didn't ask. Just ask. You need to ask. Let's bow together for prayer.